About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only in in this, that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia in the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city of Ephesus was one of the most prominent cities in all of the Greco-Roman world. Perhaps there is nothing that made this city more famous than its massive temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. By the way, the remains of this temple, there is, we still have pretty good remains of this temple that you can see today. If you ever go to ancient Ephesus, which is now in western Turkey, you can still see some of the great ruins and remains of this amazing temple, Artemis. As a matter of fact, it's actually been deemed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. One of the seven most amazing things you can see from all of antiquity can still be seen. The temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. As a matter of fact, this temple was so amazing, I want to read to you a quote from an ancient pagan author named Philo of Byzantium. Here's what he said about it. I have seen the walls and hanging gardens of ancient Babylon, the statue of Olympian Zeus, the Colossus of Rhodes, the mighty work of the high pyramids, and the tomb of Massilus. But when I saw the temple at Ephesus rising to the clouds... All these other wonders were put in the shade. This temple was known around the Greco-Roman world. But in spite of its popularity, as we just read, there was a short period in history where the pagan worship of this goddess Artemis and the love of this temple was threatened in Ephesus. Their religion was being threatened all to do to the influence of some Jewish gospel preacher named Paul. When Paul showed up to Ephesus, he came performing powerful miracles and preaching an even more powerful gospel. He and his companions for a short period of time turned that city upside down. And after laboring there for three years, a church was planted. And it is to this church that the book of Ephesians was written. Will you please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We are going to read the first two verses together. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we finished our sermon series through 1 Samuel, and so we are going to begin our next sermon series through the book of Ephesians. And I always like to take the opening chapters, and, or forgive me, the opening verses and use them to introduce the book. Before we jump into the book, I want us to know just a little something about the history and the makeup of this book. And as I like to do, kind of corny, kind of cheesy, is whenever I introduce a book, I like to steal the journalism's classic five questions, who, what, where, when, and why. So that's what we're going to look at today, the who, what, where, when, and why of the book of Ephesians. So let's briefly do the who, what, and when. We saw all of this in our first two verses. The Apostle Paul wrote this epistle. So we have the who and the what. Paul writing a letter or an epistle. And we date this letter to about 62 AD. We date this to about 62 AD. Now we get this date because we know that's when Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And we believe Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison there. You will read eventually when we get to chapter 4 verse 1. Paul's going to make very clear that he's writing this letter from prison. And the historical evidence suggests that of his different imprisonments, the one in Rome is the most likely one that this letter was written. As a matter of fact, in chapter 6 of Ephesians, we are hinted that a man named Tychicus is the one who delivered this letter to the Ephesians. And if that's true, then it's very likely that Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians were all likely written at the same time during the same imprisonment. And we believe that Tychicus... Uh, delivered all of these. So let's talk more about the where then because we've already established where Paul was. Paul was in prison in Rome in 62 AD when he penned this letter. But it's also important to know where this letter was addressed to. And as we have seen, it's addressed to the city of Ephesus. Now, there is some debate. We're not going to get into the the critical scholastic debates today. There is some debate as to whether this was actually addressed to the Ephesians, and I'll just briefly introduce you to it. It's a very modern debate, um, and that's because some of our earliest manuscripts don't have the word Ephesus or Ephesians in the first two verses. But what is interesting is the way the manuscripts read is that they read as if it's supposed to be a city and it was just maybe lost. So some scholars think that Paul like wrote in a blank and wherever it went, they could fill in their own blank. Uh, I, don't, I don't actually take that view. I think that the, the view which has historically been understood is that this was originally written to Ephesus is the correct view. But even if you were to reject that, I just want you to know it doesn't actually make a difference because everything else about this letter would still suggest it would have been distributed to all the churches in Asia Minor, which would have included Ephesus. They still would have received this letter, even if it was meant to be distributed to multiple churches. But regardless of that, I think that the historic and the overwhelmingly popular understanding that Ephesus is original is uh, a good position for us to take. So I do believe Paul wrote this specifically to the church in Ephesus. Now, as I said, obviously Paul didn't write it to a city. He didn't write this to the city of Ephesus, but to a people within the city, the people whom we call the Ephesian people. He wrote this to the Ephesians, and he tells us in verse 1, he specifically calls them saints, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Believe it or not, this is a remarkable claim. You see, the word saints has Old Testament history. This was primarily an Old Testament word, and it was usually a word to describe Israel, or more specifically, Israelites. The Israelites 
were the saints. You see, the word saint has a similar history to the word sanctified. The word saint essentially means to be set apart for a noble purpose or to be made holy. And because Israel was set apart as God's chosen people, God's chosen nation, they became a nation of saints. Those were the set-apart people, the saints. And so for all of the Old Testament, it was the Israelites who were saints as an exclusive title for them. But how does Paul apply it here? He addresses the saints who are in Ephesus, and how does he describe saints? Who is it in Paul's mind who are a saints? Who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So the word saint is no longer a term to describe a covenant people, a covenant national people. It's a description of believers. The faithful in Jesus Christ, they are the saints. So how do you know who is a saint? It's not by their skin color. It's not by their family tree. You know them by their faith. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, they are the saints. Now, by way of aside... I want to uh, just remind you that this is why in the later Reformed tradition, the Reformed churches started to drop the category of what we call canonical saints. So if you grew up, for example, the Roman Catholic Church is not the only church that does this. But if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, it was popular for you to not ever talk about John, but talk about St. John. You don't ever talk about Paul, you talk about St. Paul. And you've got all the saints that you pray to, St. Nicholas and St. And so-and-so. In the Reformed tradition, over time, they dropped these canonical saints. We don't refer to the Apostle Paul as St. Paul. We refer to him as Paul. We don't refer to Mary as St. Mary. We refer to her as Mary. And the reason we do this is because of our biblical precedent that there is not a special category of saints. That all believers in Christ Jesus are the saints. I could speak of St. Chase, St. Drew, St. Joseph. You're the saints. You are saints if you believe in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's example. He's not writing to some special class in Ephesus who lived amazing lives that the church is one day going to canonize as a saint. He's writing to all the faithful in Christ Jesus and calling them saints. Welcome to the sainthood. We're all saints in Jesus Christ. That's how Paul understands it at least. Every new covenant believer is a saint. But what's more amazing about this term is not just that it's incorporating believers, but that it's specifically incorporating Gentiles. It's not just incorporating Jewish believers, it's incorporating Gentile believers. And we know this because Ephesus was a Greco-Roman city, right? Ephesian, the city of Ephesus did not belong to Israel. It was not a, a suburb of Jerusalem, if you will. This was a very Gentile city. The predominant makeup of this church would have been Gentile people, Gentile believers, and Paul is calling them saints. As a matter of fact, as we read through this letter, it's actually going to become very clear that Paul addresses the Gentiles very specifically. So this is not just implication. We're not just implying, well, there was a lot of Gentiles there, so this must be to Gentiles. He's going to single them out. He's going to refer to them as Gentiles and say, I'm talking to Gentiles. I'm talking to you Gentiles. This was a letter written to Gentile Christians. And Paul calls them saints. And this, by the way, is going to be a small foretaste of one of the major themes of this book. Now, Paul was no stranger to these people or to this region. Uh, this church was actually the fruit of his labor. 
This church existed because of what Paul did in Ephesus. Would you turn to Acts chapter 19, please? In my opening, I had read from Acts chapter 19, but we're going to read a different portion. Acts chapter 19. Read verses 1 through 12 with me. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So let's stop there. As we see, Paul labored in this region with much resistance and persecution for nearly three years. If you were to read through all of the chapter, you will see that he received both great persecution, first from the Jews, which is what forced him out of the synagogue to start a church in a Gentile lecture hall. And then later he would receive persecution from the Gentiles. He was persecuted from all sides. He labored in this region with resistance and persecution for almost three years. And let this be an important lesson for us. The Apostle Paul, think about this, he pastored in Ephesus for nearly three years and was working extraordinary miracles in the process. And now, yes, he caused quite a stir in Ephesus. He made a great change to the city of Ephesus. But what we know historically is it's not like he converted the entire city. To use the language of modern missiologists, he did not win the city. Ephesus was still a, a pagan, Greco-Roman city when Paul died. And I think in a strange way, this should give us a little bit of hope, right? I, I don't know how high your opinion is of me, but I can at least assure you I'm no Apostle Paul, all right? Your pastor is nowhere close to the Apostle Paul. And I would just remind you that unless you've been hiding it from me, I don't believe anyone in this church, myself included, is working the kind of miracles out in Roswell that Paul was working out in Ephesus. I don't think any of you are doing that. So here we have a man, the greatest pastor other than Jesus Christ himself of all time, one of the greatest preachers of all time, working some of the greatest miracles of all time, and he put a fairly large dent in Ephesus. So what should our expectations be of three, after three years of ministry here in Roswell? We're not working miracles. We're not like the Apostle Paul. So we should not have overblown expectations to win the city and turn her around by the end of this month. 
The Apostle Paul labored for three years and he saw slow, steady growth. So this should remind us that our work will be difficult, it will be slow, but it will be rewarding. We don't need to rush this. We don't need to win Roswell tomorrow. We just need to take the step by step, working for the glory of God as Paul did in Ephesus. The book of Acts also informs us that Paul trained up and established elders to take over the church in Ephesus. And he grew very close to these men. Turn over one chapter to Acts chapter 20. Look with me at verses 36 and 38. This is speaking of Paul. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the end section of Paul giving a final goodbye to the Ephesian elders. Paul is about to go to Rome and he thinks he's going to be imprisoned there. He thinks he's going to die there. So he tells the elders that he raised up in Ephesus, you're not going to see me again. And this is their response. They fall on his neck and they weep. You see the kind of relationship Paul had with his church? Right? They clearly, Paul did not leave with the reputation of being some tyrannical CEO who just bossed people around and they were so grateful to get that Paul guy out of here so we can do our own thing. They wept. As a matter of fact, I would just encourage you, you should just read tonight or sometime this week all of Acts chapter 19 and 20. Read of Paul's work here in Ephesus and other places. Read Paul's epic goodbye here at the end of Acts 20 before he leaves the Ephesian elders. It is incredible. The warnings he gives them, the lessons he teaches them, the, the sadness that they have when they leave. It's, it's truly a remarkable story. And it shows us the pastoral heart that Paul had for them. That he had for the city and for the Christians there. And as I've been reading through the book of Ephesians preparing for the sermon series, I have been deeply moved by Paul's pastoral heart in the letter. I think you're going to be moved by it too. You're going to find as we read through this that Paul is concerned for the Ephesian people. He's concerned that they have been led to believe that they are second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. He's concerned that they're not rooted in Christ and enjoying their salvation and walking in godliness to the extent that they could be. And yet, you're not going to find any shaming in the letter at all. He does not write to them to scold them for not knowing enough theology. You should know this by now, you dummies. None of that. He does not write to scold them for their immature behavior, for not living like Christians. There's no scolding or shaming at all. It's just pure concern for them. He writes with a tender pastoral heart. He writes to them and shows them love and tries to ground them in Christ and build them up. And I personally think that Paul's letter had a great influence on the culture in Ephesus. And the reason I say that, I mean, I think it worked. And I say that because not long ago, if you remember, we did a short little sermon series in the book of Revelation we just did chapter 2, and we looked at all the different churches, the cities, the regions that the Lord Jesus addressed, and one of them was Ephesus. And that would have been after this time, after the book of Ephesians, some time after, that the Lord Jesus addressed the church in Ephesus 
and addressed her strengths and her weaknesses. And guess what her strength was in Revelation chapter 2? Her strength was the purity of her doctrine and the holiness of her conduct. He commends them for knowing Jesus well and for hating the works of the culture, the sinful culture around them. As a matter of fact, their weakness was that they, he, uh, the text tells us that they lost their first love. There's some debate as how to interpret that, but I think the way I preached it, at least I think the way we should interpret it, is they, they ended up kind of loving theology more than the God of theology. They almost loved theology and good works too much that they lost sight of God in the whole process. That was their weakness. But notice, you will find that as he writes to the Ephesians, he's writing to them because their theology is poor and their behavior is inappropriate. And then by the end of Revelation, they are being commended for their theology and their conduct. It worked. Paul changed the culture. He helped at least change the culture by writing this letter and by establishing good men to lead this church. Now the sad thing is we know from historical records that Ephesus did quickly fall away after the death of the apostles. We see from letters like 1st and 2nd Clement that Ephesus very quickly gave in to false teachers and to bureaucratic struggles for power and that we really don't know much about what happened to that church. And so that becomes another reminder for us. Good theology today does not protect unity tomorrow. Good theology today does not protect unity tomorrow. You might think this is a great church, solid church. We're really solid. And I think that's true. I hope that's true. But that doesn't mean we'll be solid tomorrow. Ephesus was solid. Where'd they go? This is a reminder. We have to fight for peace and unity in this church every day of our lives. This is a work we cannot grow lackadaisical in. Teaching good theology, it's easy to look at all the other churches who have the shows. Oh, look at the lights and look at the smoke and look at the fog machines. And There's no way those churches will last. Well, guess what? Ephesus didn't have any of those. And they didn't last either. We have to fight for unity in this church. Satan wants to destroy us. He wants to see this church divided. He would love that. It's not easy work to maintain love and unity and faithfulness. Sound doctrine today does not guarantee unity tomorrow. So that is all I'd like to say about the who, what, where, and when. Let's take some time now to talk a little bit about the why. Why did Paul write this letter? I guess I've already said a little bit about that. And, and I certainly can't exhaust it because in a certain sense, that's what the whole sermon series is. The whole sermon series is the why. As we work through every verse and every chapter of this book, you're going to learn about why Paul wrote this letter. But I think we can at least give a brief overview, a summary, if you will, of the theology and the purpose of the epistle to the Ephesians. If you will turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, if you haven't already. One of the things that always sticks out to any person who's undertaken the task of studying Ephesians is the incredible structure of the book. The way Paul structures this letter is remarkable. There are six chapters. Well, I mean, he, Paul didn't put in the chapters. We've put in the chapters. But the first half of the book is all gospel. The first half of the book, the first three chapters are all gospel. It's just salvation, salvation, salvation. Grace, grace, grace. Gospel, gospel, gospel. And then the last three chapters of the book are all law. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Live like this, don't live like this. 
And so the epistle is broken up perfectly, almost directly in half, into gospel and law. It's a law gospel epistle. And the flow of the text, the structure of the text actually teaches us, before you've even read a single word, the very structure of the letter itself teaches you something about the relationship between the law and the gospel. And that is that the gospel comes first and the law comes second. Gospel first, law second. For Paul, you believe in the gospel and you are saved by grace. You are saved by God before works, even apart from your works, he's going to say. You are not saved by your works. We are not saved even through our works. We are saved by faith through grace. But after we're saved, then we take on the law. Then we strive for obedience. Then we learn how to please God with our lives. So we obey from justification, not for justification. We obey because we're forgiven, not in order to become forgiven. And we do not live holy lives to make God adopt us. We live holy lives because we are already children of God. That's the logic that Paul uses. You get saved first apart from your works and then you apply the law. I want you to just briefly see this. Let's just look at one verse from every chapter. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Look with me at Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 9. Or 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So let's stop there. You see how gospel-saturated the flow of thought is? Saved by grace in Christ. Saved by grace apart from works. Jew and Gentile all saved by the gospel. One, two, and three is just gospel, gospel, gospel. Grace, grace, grace. But then we have a shift. Look at verse chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So now we have a shift from your calling to how do you walk in according to your calling. And he's urging them now to live holy lives. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And just lastly, let's look at chapter 6, verse 17. Or let's look at chapter 6, verses 16 and onward. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance and making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. 
You see, again, law, law, law. Do this, do this. Live like this, live like this. The first is gospel. The back end is law. And so we see this amazing relationship between law and gospel. Be saved, be justified, and then be obedient. However, one of the other primary themes that we're going to focus on, this is going to be front and center in the book of Ephesians, is this issue that we call Gentile inclusion. The letter to the Ephesians deals strongly with this issue of Gentile inclusion. What do we mean by that? The the, the issue of Gentile inclusion is one that's foreign to us today, primarily because we live in such a Gentile-saturated world. We don't live in a Jewish community, most people in America. And then And and historically, we have the backing of 2,000 years of church history behind us where this has become a very obvious gospel issue. Like this is a controversy that's going to seem really easy to you. It's going to seem like, well, duh. But this was a huge debate in the first century, this issue of Gentile inclusion. Remember, the old covenant had a distinction between Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles were very much secondary to the Jews. The Jews were the chosen people. The Jews were the important one. Even in the temple, there was a wall of partition that separated them from worship. The Gentiles could not even worship with the Jews. They were very much made to feel like second-class citizens because the Israelites were God's chosen people. He didn't covenant with the Egyptians. He didn't covenant with the Canaanites. He didn't covenant with Babylon. He covenanted with the Jews, with Israelites. And so this, this division, which grew in hostility over hundreds of years, got to the point where the Israelites hated the Gentiles, and most of the Gentiles hated them. And the Jews were the ones who were the special people. We're the chosen people. We received the law. The Gentiles didn't receive the law. We got the prophets. The Gentiles didn't get the prophets. And the Messiah is going to come and be what? Uh, The Jewish Messiah to redeem Israel, not them. There was hatred. There was division. There was hostility. And then here comes Jesus proclaiming not to be the lamb for Israel, but the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Now that was shocking. And then after Jesus, he ministered first to Israel, but then he sent his disciples out into Samaria, into the ends of the world. And so here we have Jewish apostles preaching a Jewish Messiah, which was all according to the Jewish scriptures, going out into a Gentile world saying, come be part of this thing. And so the Jews were wondering, okay, fine, I guess we have to let the Gentiles in because, I mean, after all, the Holy Spirit's falling upon them. So I guess they're saved like us, but they're still second class, right? God is still concerned for Israel, right? That's who God is concerned about. The Gentiles are just kind of like, you know, okay, you can come along too. But God's focus and his plan for the world, it's all about Israel still, right? That was many of the Jewish Christians' mindset, that this is still a Jewish religion first, And one of the most difficult controversies for the apostles throughout Galatians and Ephesians and Romans is trying to labor with Jewish Christians to get them to see, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but you're not special anymore. The Jews aren't special anymore. And just ask yourself, how do you think that went over? And so there became divisions and divisions and divisions. So one of the primary themes of the book of Ephesians is Paul explaining to the Ephesian Christians, I'm telling you, you're just as special as the Jews are. You are just as important to God as the Jews are. 
He's trying to get them to see that there is no such thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. There's no such thing. As a matter of fact, this theme, these two themes can be brought together that there's no favoritism in Christ. We are all equal in God's eyes through Christ. And so that's why we all need to live according to the same standards. This is how I would sort of summarize the entire book of Ephesians, bringing these two principles together. And it's going to be the summary for our sermon today. If you want to know, what do I take from an introduction sermon, right? We're not really opening up the text. We're not. This is what we learned, which is a, a very loose thesis for the entire book. And it's this. Every Christian must live according to the position that you have in Christ. If you're a Christian, you must live according to the position you have in Christ. The message of the book of Ephesians can be summarized as a call to live consistently with what Christ has done on your behalf. I like the way Paul puts it in the book of Philippians. He says this, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He said something very similar as we read in Ephesians 4.1. He urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. I would argue that's the thesis to the whole book. You must first know who you are in Christ. You must know what God has done on your behalf. You must know that God loves you. That he's predestined you. That Christ redeemed you. That the spirit indwells you and seals you. You must know that you are equally precious in God's sight through Christ as every other sinner that's been saved by grace. I don't care who their parents are. I don't care what their skin color is. I don't care how smart they are. I don't care how much money they make. I don't care where they come from. Every person in Christ is equal at the foot of the cross. Once you've established that, that I am a citizen in God's kingdom, I am a child of God, I have been predestined, called, justified, and forgiven, then you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You need to live accordingly to what God has done. I like to use the analogy of, uh, I was never in the military, but I played on sports teams, but whether you're on a sports team or you're in the military, there is a different expectation for your code of conduct when you're in uniform. Right? So the other day I was out in the streets and I saw a bunch of young guys, and I guessed that they might go to Nimi, but I didn't know for sure. And, but if, if I didn't know, you know, and let's just imagine they were causing trouble in Walmart. In my mind, they would have just been some young hoodlums causing trouble in Walmart. But now take the same situation, but put them in uniform. And now they're causing trouble in Walmart. It's a bigger deal now. They're going to get in more trouble now. Why? Because when they put that uniform on and they go out in public, they're now not representing themselves anymore. They're representing something greater than themselves. And so there is a higher standard of conduct. When you are representing something publicly greater than yourself, there are different expectations. And that's Paul's logic to the Christian life. Once God adopts you into his royal family, you now wear that uniform everywhere you go. That's one you can't take off. You're a Christian everywhere you go. Once you've been baptized, your baptism goes with you into every store. Every restaurant, every household, you're a Christian. You're wearing your uniform. You're representing things greater than yourself. You're representing Redeemer Christian Fellowship. 
You're representing the Christian religion. You're representing Christ himself. And so Paul's message to the Gentiles is you're not second-class citizens. You've got the same uniform, the same badge as everyone else. So why are you bringing shame to Christ with your conduct? Why are you out there living as if you're not a child of God? You're still living the way you used to live before you were adopted, before you were justified, before you were transformed. It's time to live accordingly to the uniform that you're wearing. That's essentially Paul's logic. That we need to live according to the position that we have been given in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul believes the Gentiles and Ephesians were immature Christians. They were immature in both their theology and in their conduct. And they needed to be better educated both about their position in God's church and how that ought to cause them to live out in the world. They needed more knowledge of their great salvation and more knowledge of how Christians are called to behave. So Paul wrote a short letter to better instruct them on Christian doctrine and Christian ethics. And my prayer is that the Lord will use this letter to teach us the same things, no matter where we're at in our faith. And I do believe that the book of Ephesians will prove beneficial. It's a wealth of deep knowledge of both practical and theological issues. I believe it's also going to be just downright interesting as we're going to cover even some many controversial topics. Things like predestination, dispensationalism, God's sovereignty, male headship. And additionally, there's just some famous passages in the book that people talk about a lot that are going to be fun to address. The famous passage in Ephesians 2 that we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. In Ephesians 6, we briefly touched on it. The famous, they put on the full armor of God. You know, we teach that to our kids all the time growing up. And so I hope you're excited for the book of Ephesians. I know that I am. And I pray that the Lord, when we conclude this letter, that we will enjoy the gospel more richly and that we will pursue holiness more passionately.